Today's episode contains a discussion on mental health, which might be triggering or upsetting for some. If you or someone you know has struggled with their mental health, please seek medical help and reach out to a certified care provider. Long before the idea of mental health was cemented as an essential part of one's well-being, those struggling with their mental health were confined to spaces that primarily functioned on a punitive model. The patients were labeled as dangerous to the society and isolated in asylums. That of course has changed over time. Today, we are in conversation with artist and activist James Leadbitter, who goes by the name Vacuum Cleaner and works with young people, health professionals and vulnerable adults to change how mental health is understood, treated and experienced. With the support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts, we talk about what good mental health feels like, what it tastes, smells and sounds like, and if we could design our own safe space, what does it look like? I am Vaishnavi Shukla and this is Architecture of Center podcast where we highlight contemporary discourses that shape the built environment but do not occupy the center stage in our daily lives. We speak to radical designers, thinkers and change makers who are deeply engaged in redefining the way we live and interact with the world around us. I wanted to talk about yourself and the t-shirt you're wearing. I think that's a good beginning. Okay, so my name is James, I'm an artist and mental health activist. I live in England. And today I am wearing my Hannah Madness t-shirt. Hannah Madness is a artist and mental health activist who lives in Jakarta, who I've worked with on a few different occasions, particularly looking at mental health care in Indonesia. And she's a very amazing, inspiring artist and activist who's really pushing the boundaries of challenging stigma and discrimination in in mainly in Java, in Indonesia, but across the whole of Southeast Asia, really. You've done a fair bit of work on mental health, and which is what we're going to talk about today. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the mental health care infrastructure that exists around you and that you've also at some point in your life, if you want to talk about it, experienced firsthand. Sure. In England, well, in the UK, we have the, the National Health Service. So it's health service that's paid through taxation. But in terms of the history of mental health care in Particularly in England, I think, it dates back over a thousand years in terms of how people that have struggled with their mental health, but also people with perhaps learning disabilities or other kind of neurological differences have been confined within enclosed spaces. There's a long history there of of enclosure um, that is quite a violent history. Not quite, it's a very violent history. But in the kind of... 1800s here we begin to see the emergence of you know old uh, large asylums that are the kind of foundation of mental health hospitals here so those were large grand buildings often on the edges of cities and that kind of comes back to this kind of very English notion of confinement but also that like people would be put to work and that like labour and activities would be the treatment for your mental health and then fast forward to the kind of 
the 1900s with the emergence of the kind of state-run healthcare system here a lot of those spaces were taken over by the the national health service and that journey's gone on a, on a few different ways from the kind of closure of those asylums and mental health care being moved into kind of general hospitals but never really moving away from a system of very hierarchical care and care being based on kind of punitive models so whether that is mm. you know what we now call like the chemical straitjackets or a, you know the use of a lot of very strong medication and not really much early intervention in healthcare so only really dealing with people when they're in crisis and we don't have what we call parity of esteem so the funding that goes into health a lot more goes into physical health than into mental health so in the uk the kind of what they call the disease burden mental health is 26 percent of the disease burden of of england but only gets about four percent of the funding so the kind of level of care that you might get in a state-run mental health hospital in england is is really poor my experience backs that up so hospitals aren't clean they are very institutional they're very drab you know they are not therapeutic kind environments and you know i've spent time in hospitals with people that have also been in prisons and and those prisoners will joke Mm. that like well this is worse than being in prison but you've not done anything wrong so that's the kind of state that we're in now now things have changed a little bit over perhaps the last 13 years because we have the the right-wing government here in england and and that you know the health service has been massively defunded so mental health care has got you know significantly worse it's now in a situation where in the past if you were in crisis you could go into hospital and the hospital wasn't very good now we're in the position where if you're in crisis there is essentially nothing we're kind of heading towards an american model really i was going to ask you this but you you mentioned it directly because the definition i mean the the archaic definition of these facilities sounds very close to that of an incarceration infrastructure and the season before this we were actually talking about crime violence and justice and we we had an episode where we were speaking about prisons per se and also something that was quite profound as i said the chemical straitjacket i mean again historically when you look at it you find at least in popular culture these representations of people being put in like a physical straitjacket being restrained physically and now you're saying that's somehow shifted into like a chemical straitjacketing where you're saying the drugs have overtaken what the physical force used to do and you're trying to change the chemical balance of a person and change their behavior that that's kind of what it's doing right well i mean i i think there's some caveats to this conversation and i think we need to be really careful because I, I think it's important that mm. you know I am not against medication I think there are certain medications that can be really useful so I think it's really important that like people who take medication shouldn't be hearing what I'm saying and saying that all medication is bad right. but I think definitely a lot of medication are essentially tranquilizers. you know a lot of mm. medication for psychosis for bipolar for anxiety we're essentially giving people large doses of of tranquilizers so and particularly within inpatient care you know um you can be given large doses of lorazepam or haloperidol which will essentially knock you out and sedate you for days weeks and sometimes months yes we aren't putting people in physical straitjackets but we are sedating to the point where you know you can become a zombie and you're in a zombie state because the, the you know the meds that you're on are so strong so yeah, the forms of confinement have changed. 
Now, I want to jump into mad love because that's what we're talking about today. And that is, of course, I don't know, would you would you call it? Well, it's a project. It's not a piece. It's not a performance, but it's a project. And that has been a direct reflection on a translation of your experience and uh, how you thought all this energy and experience could be channeled into something a little more creative and then collectively be worked towards, you know, I hope so at some level getting into policy making or design of all these facilities so that it caters to the therapies or be that wholesome therapeutic place that it needs to be as opposed to the kind of places that exist right now. Can you talk about Mad Love? Yeah, so um, Mad Love, a designer asylum. So, you know, taking the word mad and love and kind of mashing them together. So, and then a designer asylum. So, the, you know, the word asylum in its origins means a safe place. But those hmm. those safe places should be places of luxury. Because if you're struggling with your mental health, you haven't done anything wrong. And to go back to your point about confinement and criminality, like the perception was in the past that if, if you were mad, you were dangerous, but a little bit more enlightened nowadays. So yeah, like what, you know, the, the, the question really of the project or the process was really, if we're going to experience mental distress, and if mental distress isn't a bad thing, what kind of environments could that be experienced in a healthy way? Because I think people struggling with their mental health have always been with us and will always be with us. So how can we support people on that journey in a, in a positive way? And what kind of environments would you want to be in to experience what could be quite a, a painful and distressing thing at times, but could also be enlightening? It's, it's a journey like any other. So for me, that process began as an inpatient when I was in a, in a hospital in London and I had a friend come and visit me and she'd never been in a mental health hospital before and she was like yo this place is horrible like I'm sorry dude and I was like jokingly said like yeah yeah, yeah I could design something better than this and then hung out with her a bit you know a month later after I'd come out of the hospital and she was like you know you jokingly said that you can make a better mental health hospital than the one you were in and I was like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and she was like go on off you go do it like why not so that idea sat sat with me about like who has the knowledge to make healthy environments to experience mental distress i'm not belittling what you know the knowledge and experience that architects have but if you really want to experience and you really want to understand what those care environments the needs are talk to the people that use them and so that really began a process of me finding people who had had experiences of inpatient care or were in inpatient care and asking them a series of very simple questions. So questions like, you know, what does good mental health look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it mm. sound like? And what does it feel like to touch? What is our sensory response to mental health care? Um, what activities support mental health? So what design functionality do we need to put into an environment? And, you know, if you could design your own asylum, if you could design your own safe space, what would it be like? What would you have in it? And so that kind of just kind of snowballed as a process, really, from, you know, talking to a few people in some art spaces to being invited into hospitals here in England to that spreading across into mainland Europe and then going to other places in around the world. And I think so far we've we've listened to over 600 people 
wow. and what they what they say and everybody says the same things what 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 i'm very curious we have to talk about what what are those things if you were to like put it at just like bullet points sure i mean in terms of the senses you know there's there's obviously there's a there's a big focus on on nature but like you know what does good mental health smell like it smells like baked bread it smells like my mother's cooking it smells mm. like red wine it smells like the sea or a forest what does it look like it's the horizon it's a big sky it's it's being on top of a mountain and getting that sense of a vista uh, what does it sound like it's it's the sound of silence it's the sound of bird song or it you know a lot of people talk about music and music having that connection to memory it's natural environments and then but then you also get like you know the left the left field ideas of like a man i spoke to who was like it smells like petrol because i used to <laughs> fix i used to fix cars with my dad my dad passed recently and that's a like you know that smell is really evocative so you know we experience design through our senses but clinical environments often smell of cleaning products and those cleaning mm. products are not like they don't smell of lavender or or the you know the sense of a bed that you lie in if you're depressed if that bed is like I've never stayed in a five-star hotel, but if it was like that kind of bed, how does that change your relationship with the environment that you're in? So, and this is all really obvious. And then, you know, in terms of activities, we've had really beautiful ideas. Like, you know, I spoke to a quite a young person. He was under 18 and he said, what I want in my perfect mental health hospital is a room of Fabergé eggs and a hammer. <laughs> or people wanting a room of bubble wrap or, a, 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 you know, farms and... So that you're not in a deadened environment, that you're in a stimulated environment where there are things to do and those things are, you know, connecting the mind-body in a positive way. So things that seem really obvious, you know, <laughs> it's not rocket science. It, it seems like a lot of it has to do, I mean, all those recollections or things that people associated with like good mental health seems to be directly connected to memory it seems i think it's it's very it's the way you described it doesn't sound like it's utopian that it could look like this but it sounds like something they've already experienced or like have an association with mm, but i think that's true of a lot of design process except the fabergé eggs <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but i it's <clears throat> i think ultimately what we're boiling it down to is comfort and safety because mm. if, if you are in a vulnerable position, like if you're experiencing very intense emotions, um, that might be the first time that you're experiencing them, them. If you know, if your anxiety levels are through the roof, if you're having no feelings, if you're hearing voices, mm. all of these things can be quite scary. So to feel safe feels important and safety and, and memory and there's a there's a there's an obvious connection there. Mm. And what happened after you'd spoken to like 600 people? And of course, there's design aspect of it as well, where you put together something. Yeah. So we've, I mean, we've, you know, obviously, you know, taking all that knowledge and wisdom that, you know, that we've had the huge privilege to to listen to and, and to document, we've tried to manifest that in different ways. So we, we've manifested that in the art world through making installations that kind of, so working with architects to go, okay, what ways can we demonstrate this work? So we kind of had made kind of conceptual architectural models that we've displayed at the Welcome Collection. We've made kind of bigger installations that have kind of showed design features. So that might be about different levels of height and how that changes your relationship to space or different textures. Mm. 
but then we've also been able to work with the health service here to implement it within within inpatient care so again working with a hospital in edinburgh uh, which was a children's hospital children's mental health hospital to work with the young people there and the adults that they you know parents and carers of those young people and the staff taking them on a similar kind of process and then and the architects being in the room and engaging in that process that then those architects went away and designed that inpatient unit so and then also you know bigger kind of community projects as well so trying to think about what community needs are so we were able to take over uh, an empty shopping unit on a high street and change that into a big community mm. space that took all that knowledge and manifested it into different design features there and different activities as well so we're trying to kind of figure out how how we can create models that inspire change really and and kind of uh, map out the sharing of that knowledge in a, in a kind of manifested way now since this is uh this is a podcast and we don't have any visual aid. Could you give us an audio tour of one of the installations? And if, if I were to walk through it, what would I see? What would I touch? What would I smell? What would I taste? The kind of conceptual model that we made for the Welcome Collection, which was designed by Benjamin Klauski and, and James Christian from Projects Office. So that was what they called a kind of landscape for mental health. So it's set in a valley and you enter through a pathway and you follow a pathway into the bottom of the valley. And in that valley, the first thing that you enter is a town square. And so that idea of community in a town square in a common area, the commons. And in that area is like bunting and it's kind of kind of got that joyful kind of, I imagine like the south of France, you know, square. But the idea is that there's always somebody there. That's the place where you can always find someone. So if you're distressed or you need to talk, you need to check in, that's the environment. And working off that town square are different environments. So there is an art studio there with a kiln in it. And, you know, just like, if you just imagine the best art studio and it's, it's kind of brightly mm. coloured. Um, on the opposite side of that is a bakery. So this idea of, you know, often like the kitchen is the heart of the home and it's where, you know, the kitchen can be the place where you have the difficult conversations and food and association and cooking for each other being a really therapeutic thing. But also, you know, the smell of bread, the smell of salt, the smell of like making coffee for somebody in the morning, the smell of fresh fruit being really essential mm. need. And then obviously linking to that bakery is uh, what we call a market garden here in England. So it's a small holding land where you know, you can put your hands in the earth and you can grow things. And then that would lead down to seafront area because, it, you know, a lot of people talk about the, the mm. smell of the sea being really important with kind of, you know, different natural lakes and, and viewing platforms and a space mm. to, to fish. It has a birdhouse in it so you can... Migratory birds have been brought into that environment. And then the two valleys kind of serve different functions. So one side of the valley... Is the, is the bedrooms. People spoke a lot about, in Star Wars, I think it's in the third original Star Wars, there's the Ewoks, and they have these, like, treetop tree houses. And that came up a lot, this idea of, like, the joy of a child climbing a tree. Mm. Bedrooms in treetops. So it's a kind of that idea. But each one is modularly designed because a lot of people spoke about the need to have space that they can adapt to their needs. 
So it's like you can position the bed in this room where you want. So it could be that the bed is against the window. So you can look out mm. where the bed is hidden in the corner because you want a darker environment. Um, so that's a kind of modular approach to the design of those bedrooms. And they are kind of trees in a forest. So you're walking around a path to get to your bedroom and it's in a kind of forest environment. And then the other side of that kind of valley is really thinking about therapeutic conversations and spirituality because spirituality can be really important so Mm. there are kind of you know if that's a valley leading up there are kind of enclosed spaces for quiet conversations there was an observatory in there so there's a space to gaze at the stars there was kind of different kind of wider conversation spaces so if you need to speak as a group but that's really about quietness quiet conversation and again that thing of like zooming out from from where you are and i guess the other thing about that model it's brightly colored like it's it's bright pink it's um there's a lot of teal in it there's a lot of yellow in it so colors are stimulating they're not deadened they're bringing i don't know like i'm i'm here in the uk and i'm looking out at like red brick houses Mm. and it's everything's kind of uniform but it's it's got contrast and depth in it through bright colors because why not have joyful colors in life it it sounds like happiness right there's something about joy that's really important and i think there's something about it seems kind of counterintuitive to be in a joyful space when you're when you're maybe struggling but bringing yeah. that joy and that laughter can be really it can be so nourishing for the soul. So, yeah, why not? Like cities... I'm surprised nobody talked about, like, puppies. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, I forgot about the, the puppies and the kittens. And there, oh, there, there was, I went with a group of very young children. They were really obsessed with baby rhinos. They wanted a, a hospital ward full of baby rhinos. I'm like, great, why not? But, uh, James, I, I do want to talk about uh, something a little more uh, serious that you mentioned a couple of minutes ago. And you, you talked about how there needs to be a certain involvement of people who've, uh, you know, encountered or have experienced something to do with mental health or have been involved in a mental healthcare facility and it's it's interesting that we're having this conversation today because i recorded another episode just yesterday with um with an academician based out of the u.s called david kisson and he's just written a book about the architecture of disability and he talks about how architecture limits the discourse on disability to just the question of access that for architects it's often just providing elevators and ramps and so he's really criticizing about how we need to go beyond that and really critique the relationship that disabled people have had through history with the different monuments and the different uh, movements that have happened with city planning urban design so and so forth and i in the end i mean I'm leading up to that question, but I did ask him, it's like, how do you how do you change it? Like, what would it look like to change the discourse? And he said, we need to have more people. And he's also somebody who's who's an amputee. So it's like, we need to have more people like me who are part of the system, who have a seat at the table when these decisions are being made, people who are part of the faculty, people who encourage students with different able bodies to be actively be a part of the classroom. And And what you said kind of relates to what David was talking about yesterday. And you said, you need to have more people involved and people need to bring in their own personal experiences in order to design these places or or build these places which actually cater to them, right? So it's, it's I wouldn't say it's like a, 
participatory design process, but there needs to be some kind of a system in which you, it's not even a feedback loop, that you have more involvement in how these places are designed rather than just architects who don't necessarily have encountered these places and then having like a top-down approach. No, I think it's, I think it, I think it need, we need to go much further than that because actually I'm not, dismissing the knowledge that architects have or engineers have or psychiatrists. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, but those are not the only people. No, but it, I think actually like what what, we're, what we've been trying to propose through the Madelow project is actually care environments for mental health should be designed and run by people with lived experience because mm. it's there's actually a politics of, of liberation and you know, we have to address the question of power in this situation. Like, who has power over distressed people? Often we talk about mental health care being done to us. It's not a collaborative thing. So actually, Mm. what we're trying to propose through this process is the idea that actually, if we we engage in deep listening, if we engage in empathy and kindness and really listen to people with lived experience, will find that their knowledge is really powerful and their 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 understanding of how to design environments is is incredible and yes they Mm. might not be able to make a building stand up and they might not have a nuanced understanding of different materiality and color but actually it's more than than co-authorship it's about architects supporting mad people on our journeys rather than us giving our ideas to architects because mm. architecture, like art, you know, I'm an artist, so I, I, I include myself in this. There's a lot of ego in it and, and a lot mm. of like white male ego, of course, but like it is ultimately, you know, space is a collaborative process and mental health is really, really complex. And so the design required for um, mental health is infinitely complex. And, and the idea that, you know, for disability, design needs to be about more than access you know that's a really Mm. expansive idea it's a beautiful idea it's really expansive but if we're everybody's mental health is different everybody's mind is different and the way that everybody experiences mental health is different so how do you design an environment that caters for that vast experience of like you know there are 10 billion synapses in the human brain that's like an infinite possibility of design so what the other thing that we've really learned on this process is, is that it's not about creating something that is fixed in time. It has to be adaptable and changeable to the needs of that specific person and that and and a specific culture wherever you might be in the world. No, I mean, for sure, I, there's, there's no way I'm minimizing the role of an architect. I've, I live and work as an architect. And of course, you need a certain amount of like technical sound skills to make sure the building stands. But really looking at the, uh, don't like using this word a lot now, but agency of people who've had a certain lived experience be an integral part of the project. And which is why it's very nice to see how you've almost taken this anthropological process of speaking to people, sharing with people, absorbing knowledge from people, and then taking all of that, learning all of the lived experiences into something that can be manifested into a physical space. So, I mean, of course, the process, but also the idea behind doing rather than just like sending out like a survey form. <laughs> but I think also like, I, you know, I'm, I've been really privileged to do some quite basic permacultural tra- training. And in permaculture design processes, the first thing that you do is 
protracted observation. You mm. observe an ecological system so that you understand where, when the sun lands on that bit of soil and how it behaves over a few years and when the water comes in so that when you are planting and designing an ecological system, you have a deep understanding of, of the natural environment and how it impacts that. And I think that has real relevance for all kinds of different practice where actually rather than beginning with a blank piece of paper and a pen and, and drawing shapes or whatever, you are really observing the thing that you're engaging with and listening and, and engaging in a real deep, deep listening process. And hopefully, you know, from that, loads of really amazing things can emerge and better design emerges from that. I was wondering, how do you imagine mad love growing from here what's next to have you been in conversation i mean you did mention it's it's taken a life of its own and you've expanded in geography to other countries other cities but does it have the potential of being written into policy not as a guidebook on this is how it should be designed and then a b c d because that kind of defies the whole purpose but as a process at least for me personally things with the project were really growing and then we you know like I think a lot of people, we had we had the COVID pandemic and that really created a huge challenge for us because, you know, we weren't able to, to be together in a room and that mm. really impacted us. And, and I think we've, you know, I've kind of taken a change in direction in terms of my work as an artist um, in that I've had to focus... There's, in England, there's a really massive crisis going on with young people's mental health particularly after COVID because, the, you know, we young people were just not considered in lockdown and, and that impact on them. So I've had to take a slight mm. different tax in terms of what I'm doing. Um, but that knowledge is still existing. So I'm still doing a lot of presentations and design conferences and stuff. But I think, I think one of the challenges really is how that utopian thinking, that willfully optimistic thinking around process gets translated into the mainstream and I haven't really been able to figure that out because when you begin to engage with big institutions like health service providers or with government policy things become really beige really quickly and as an artist I'm really interested in the edge lands you know again in a in an ecological system it's 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 where it's the hedges it's where two systems meet that you find the most fertile mm -hmm. area. So I haven't really been pushing it over the last year and a bit. I don't know how it ripples into other things, to be honest. But it's a conversation you started and there's much to be grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think like, you know, I yes, I'm an artist and an activist, but I, I, I'm not a policy mm -hmm. person. And I think like, I, I believe in the power of arts to provoke and challenge and... You know, the, the, uh, it, it has done that. But I think there's bigger questions around structural ableism. You know, mental health is a disability like any other. And the questions of how yeah. we overcome structural ableism, like any other form of like structural discrimination, there's huge work to do around challenging the notion that just because you're struggling with your mental health that you can't make informed decisions. Or So I don't have a solution to that. Let me know. I, I don't think there is one. I mean, I, I only ask about policy because in, in my head, the way I think about things, it's just if it's if it's written, if, you know, you've like put it in writing, it 
ensures you know its application and its replicability in in some format and just to kind of increase its its reach it's interesting like i mean i'm not i'm not totally disagreeing what you're saying but i think for me as an artist i think like policy of course, is, poli- yeah. policy can be where wonderful ideas goes to die <laughs> because I, but, but i actually think it's about because it is about process like you know mad love is a project but it's really about it really is a process, it's a process. and yeah. and process is where wonderful things can happen so i think in a lot of the work i'm trying to do it's about bringing a lot of people into a process and mm. i don't think that can be manifested totally in policy because that is also about that is about lived experience so and that is that is like that's generational work to kind of to reimagine what that might be like but it's something during the pandemic i i left london like a lot of people i you know i moved out of a big city and i now live by the sea in a seaside town here in england where there's a lot of empty buildings and i'm beginning to kind of wonder now about this intersection between art, design, activism, mutual care, yeah. and kind of when I walk along the sea, there's this big building, and I'm like, that'd be such mm-hmm. a good place for it. But um, I don't necessarily want to get tied down in running a building and a space. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person that likes to jump around a lot. Well, thank you so much for this conversation and for your time and for sharing. <laughs> Oh, that's okay. No problem. I hope it was useful and of interest to people. Special thanks to Ayushi Thakur for the research and design support and Kahansha for the background score. You can follow us on Instagram at arcofcenter and reach out to us through our website arcofcenter.com That is A-R-C-H-O-F-F-C-E-N-D-R-E And thanks for listening.